Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The Philosophy of Sex. Welcome to the Philosophy of Sex. I'm Caroline Moreau Hammond. Has anyone ever called you anal? Or maybe suggested you have mummy or daddy issues? Perhaps you've been the one to dish out these titles. For all of these terms, we have Freud to thank. Sigmund Freud is widely regarded as the founder of psychoanalysis, a field of theory and therapy that grapples with the unconscious mind. In modern times, Freud is also often regarded as a woman-hating cokehead. His work has been the subject of decades of criticism, but also absolute praise. Irrespective of how you feel about Freud, the pervasive nature of his thinking is undeniable. Many of his thoughts still underpin our ideas of sexuality. Western ideas of repression, narcissism, the unconscious and the Oedipus complex all stem from Freud. Over the years, countless interpretations and entire sub-branches of psychology have emerged in response to his work. His intellectual legacy is astonishing, traversing sexuality, dreams, development and beyond. Poet W.H. Auden described Freud as providing a whole climate of opinion under whom we can conduct our different lives. Yet popular understanding of what Freud actually wrote and said is rare. Today's guest, Jameson Webster, is someone who has spent significant time reading, contemplating, and responding to Freud's work. Jameson is a psychoanalyst and author based in New York, and she's worked as an analyst for many years, taught the subject at the New School in New York, and recently wrote Disorganization and Sex, which explores the endlessly disorienting nature of sexuality. Jameson views psychoanalysis through a philosophical lens, grounding many of Freud's seemingly abstract ideas. Agreeing with Freud, Jameson demonstrates that since psychoanalysis concerns things that make us uncomfortable, it will always face resistance. In this broad conversation, Jameson and I discuss many of Freud's central concepts, like the death drive, the Oedipus complex, and phallocentrism, as well as his often misrepresented views on gender, we also discuss what a psychoanalyst is and what role they play in helping people understand their sexuality. A quick heads up that there are some conversations about eating disorders and child sexuality in this episode. Please enjoy my conversation with the delightfully frank Jameson Webster. So I wanted to start by talking to you about what a psychoanalyst actually is. I think a lot of people will have heard the term, but they won't really know the difference between what a psychologist is, what a psychoanalyst is, what a psychotherapist is. So if you could kind of your position yourself within the broader framework. No, it's a really important question because one thing people have to remember is that the field is young. 
so even psychiatry doesn't predate Freud by all that much. And Freud is, you know, starting in the 1900s. And what it is in its present incarnation is a mixture of factors from capitalism to insurance companies to universities and to just an amalgamation of various ideas about the science of the mind. So it's a mess, <laughs> is what I would say. <laughs> And nobody understands what they're getting. And this is actually part of the mental health crisis is that you don't understand what's, what, who you're seeing and what their training is or anything. So you could have a mental health counselor who has a degree that took them two years to get. You could have a social worker who was in school for two years and the focus was on, I mean, social worker very broadly has to do with, you know, taking care of various parts of society that have to do with health services, families, and the mentally ill. And then they do clinical work, which specializes them for four years after that. You become a clinical psychologist. That's a degree that takes five to eight years. Or you become a psychiatrist, in which case you go to medical school and then you do a residency that eventually specializes you in psychiatry. Any of these degrees, the amount of training for therapy, broadly speaking, varies intensely. You can have a psychiatrist who's had no experience in therapy. Um, you can have a social worker who also had no experience in therapy. Then you have this thing called a psychoanalyst. And a psychoanalyst could have none of those degrees or could have any of those degrees. But it is a postdoctoral, postgraduate training. So it's always on top of another degree that you've done. Psychoanalytic degree requires that the other degrees don't require is that you go into your own very, very intensive therapy because it believes that you can't do therapy without having gone to it, but not just gone to it, but gone to it to the max. Gone through you it, know? not just to it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I think this is really important because if you see a psychoanalyst, they have been in school for a very long time. Yeah. And then often want to be paid the least because we want to see you multiple times a week, which reduces our income. Mm. So I, that's very important to me is that you understand that we have gone to school the most and we charge the least. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't something that I realized about uh, psychoanalysis until I went to it for my first time in sort of my late teens. And I was so shocked that people would go to see their therapist sort of between three and five times a week, like a lot. <laughs> right. So can you sort of explain to people the process of how you work with people in your practice? I mean, it depends. I mean, some people you see less frequently and some people you see more and why it shakes out that way is complicated. Sometimes it's your recommendation. Sometimes it starts one way and goes another the classical idea actually is that you are in therapy more than you are not in therapy. So if you go three to four to five times a week, you are more in therapy in your week than you are not. And the reason this is important is because it doesn't let its grip off of you. And, you know, we don't want to deal with ourselves. We don't. Inherently, we do not want to deal with ourselves. So the only way to get you from escaping into your life and into your drama and into your whatever distractions is to put the pressure on. And you can do more with someone three, four, five times a week in two years than you can one time a week in five to seven years. And I, that's for me, a hundred percent true. Now it's, it's an intensity that I don't think is necessarily right 
for everybody, necessarily right, right off the bat, or maybe not necessarily right at all. But the idea is that there is something very, very special that can happen when the process kind of really gets traction. Yeah. And I wanted to talk to you sort of as part of that about your process of becoming a psychoanalyst. Obviously, you said that it is something that you really have to experience to practice clinically. So would love to hear a bit about your journey to kind of get to where you are. You know, I sort of created this idea that I wanted to be a psychoanalyst when I was like 17 years old and started studying it. And I went to college early. And then when I was 18, 19, like junior, senior, I wrote all the psychoanalytic institutes in New York, these letters saying, hey, I'll work for you for free. And they were like, what is this like 18 year old girl? But they, they were so nice. I mean, they let me come work there. I worked in a therapeutic nursery and I worked at the William Allison White Institute in the research department, like inputting the information for people who were applying for psychoanalysis, which meant that I read all these amazing applications. You know, I mean, it's like, like a hack job, but I read all these applications to see what people have to say about themselves when they're asking for therapy. And it really moved me. I mean, it really impacted me. And I also started analysis. And, you know, I mean, ostensibly, I wanted to fix myself <laughs> or I wanted to fix my family or I wanted to fix all kinds of things. I mean, I also really believed in, I believed in dreams and I believed in sexuality. And, mm-hmm. and obviously there are lots of different ideologies or paths you can kind of take within psychoanalysis, Freudian being one, there being many others. Can you explain where you kind of fit within that context as well? Yeah, I'm a Freudian, I think, very, very basically. Although I've aligned myself with Lacan, because for me, he's the greatest reader of Freud. There's things that I still read that he does with a Freud text, and I'm like astonished. I'm just like, I'm blown away. You know, like, I mean, it just like turns the thing inside out and you go like, you'll never see it the same again. And just also the impact that it has on on the way that I can think about life or think about, yeah, I mean, think about life and think about suffering. It's funny because I, I'm in this complicated position where I don't necessarily identify with the Freudians that I meet in the United States. And I don't identify with the Lacanians that I meet in Europe. <laughs> so I don't know where I belong. Um, but I do love reading Freud and I do love uh, Lacan and I've met people in both camps along the way that have meant a lot to me. But in general, I have a lot of difficulty with the field. I feel like you talk to anyone within a particular profession that's kind of charting their own course, though, they'll say that, right? There are ideas from across the spectrum within their field that they can identify with. But um, I don't think you want to be overly tribal in adhering to one particular set of thoughts. So that's that's probably a good sign more than anything else, I would say. No, I think it's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that the psychoanalysis should be very, very wary of professionalizing itself. I mean, it's always a kind of marginal, weird enterprise. So, I guess wanted to segue a bit at this point to actually talking about Freud. I think he's obviously someone who's reputation tends to precede even in his death where people sort of have a sense of who he was but don't probably really know all that much about what he actually said. The classic go-to is that he's a misogynistic, patriarchal asshole basically who didn't really understand. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) So what did he actually say about sex and about psychoanalysis more, more generally? 
I mean, I think, you know, the most important thing for me is to understand what he grew out of. Yeah. He started as a psychiatrist. None of the therapies were working that he was taught, which were hypnosis and water treatments. <laughs> Torture. <laughs> and, like, and like massage, you know, and drugs, basically. And we're, we're actually not that far off these days, if you think about like the wellness uh, industry. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he got this idea from his patients that they should be listened to. And in listening to them, because he was a smart guy, started to hear that what they had to say had this incredible logic. Not to say like you're logical. In what they were saying, you got a whole different picture of the mind. And that it, it revealed its own logic, that a logic was determining their lives that they did not know themselves. And from that, he understood what symptoms meant he understood what dreams meant. He understood the radical place of sexuality in the human being. He understood how important the body was. I think he understood the plight of women. <laughs> he had complicated things to say about women because he had his own problems and was frustrated with them for not complying. But nevertheless, he still heard their planes. And I think that that's kind of incredible at the moment that he did it. I think he understood human aggression in society. He understood how language goes beyond animal instinct and really produces a different kind of species that doesn't understand its own limits. And he understood how the way that civilization is structured insofar as it has to recognize something about all of this, body, sexuality, unconscious life, pleasure, displeasure, insofar as it has to recognize this and make room for it, when it doesn't do that, we will implode as a species. We will exterminate ourselves. I think the concept of the death drive was one of the most radical concepts to come onto the table at the time that it did. No, and I mean, your, your point around human beings not being particularly keen or willing to dive into a lot of these things is possibly in part why people are so resistant towards it. It's it's not always comfortable, a lot of what Freud is proposing. But, you know, I remember being exposed to his ideas and thinking this is uncomfortable, but deeply helpful because it, it makes sense as disheartening as that can be with some of the things that he says, it, it is helpful. So I guess for people who aren't as clear on some of what he said, how would some of these ideas like the Jeff Drive or the Oedipus Complex or these things sort of manifest for a person and show up for them? The death drive, for example, shows up in so many ways. I mean, to the extent that a human being, you know, look at the animal world, they eat what they need to eat, and that's the end of the story, right? And if they can't get food, they search for food, and then they get food and they're satiated and, and they're done. Something goes wrong in our very basic natural inclinations, which um, Freud says has to do with the drive, the pleasure principle, sexuality, and the death drive. And somehow like we are connected to one another through language and through civilization that distorts our own instincts. So eating is not simple. There's no right way to eat as a human being. We don't know what to eat, how much to eat, when to eat, how to, we, we have no idea. Right. Hence the nine million prescriptions on the Internet. I mean, if you really think about this basic fact, it's fascinating. It's fascinating that you can develop symptoms like anorexia or um, bulimia, where we can eat the wrong way and kill ourselves 
for some reason that we have to understand. You know, and so that's one way to think about the death drive, no less think about things like nuclear war, you know, and so on and so forth. So you have the individual level and then you have the social level. I mean, addictions right now. I mean, you know, overdoses and suicides are up extraordinary percentages across the world. And Freud said he doesn't understand how someone could take their own life because it's an extraordinary act against one's own self-preservative instincts which are supposed to be incredibly strong. So what has happened to the human being? The Oedipus complex, in a way, was also an example of this kind of perversion. It wasn't just parents who cared for us and set us off on our path to having our own lives, but that something in the family becomes involuted. Like, we don't want to have the parents we had. We're angry at our parents for being the people that they were. We don't like what they gave us. They didn't want us to be certain things. They're furious at us for going further than them, not going as far as them. You name it. And you watch these families start to kind of cave in on themselves with this aggression and expectations and so on and so forth, which you can also trace through the generations, right? This generational transmission of complexes and he called this the oedipus complex Hmm. obviously there's a common misconception is uh or the base idea that people have about the oedipus complex is basically girls want to fuck their dads and boys want to fuck their mums so is that accurate and if not why not (laughs) it's like half accurate you know it's half the story it's like the great story to tell Um, You could say that about the play, the Sophocles play that it came from, but that's also, you know, the play is incredibly complex because Oedipus's parents, he fucked his mother and killed his father, but they tried to kill him. (laughs) You know, they tried to kill him first and then he didn't mean to kill the father and then he deceived his mother and then when he found out, he ripped his eyes out and whatever, it goes on and on. So, but there is, you know, there is the story, which is basically that we have possessive and murderous feelings towards our parents for the limitations that we experience in relationship to them that exceed the bounds of what any relationship can handle. What indications did he give or ideas did he have around what creates that disconnect between possibility and expectation? He starts off in a way, in an interesting way, very biologically, actually. But he had this paper where he said that there was the Ice Age. And for the first time, man's basic needs could not be met by the outside world. It's like a metaphorical moment. It's also a real moment, he was speculating. And so what we had to do was to turn away from um, libidinal attachment, sexuality, family building, because you couldn't make a family if you're going to bring a child into a world that couldn't satisfy its needs. Then he said we became neurotic. Because once you cut off libidinal attachments and turn it inwards, you have to do something with it. <laughs> so he said we went from anxiety to repressed sexuality to obsessive compulsive disorder in which we wanted to believe in the power of our own minds over and against the reality that was saying, you know, you're done for. To paranoia and psychosis. <laughs> and he says... Everything that you find in today's, today's society, all of the psychopathology started from this one moment in which we, did, you know, we had to figure out some internal way to deal with the fact that reality was threatening to us. 
you know, I think that within that, you can tell a story where the family unit builds up. It builds up with all of these bits and pieces in place, you know, over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm. It's fascinating. I hadn't heard that that was kind of the moment in time that he thought there was that switch. But I mean, you think of family units now and they are known for being these kind of fragmented things where everyone has their own narrative and idea around the reality of of what is happening. But I think it's interesting what you were saying before around the actual process of psychoanalysis being an opportunity to allow the an individual's logic of that narrative or story that they've created to kind of reveal itself. I hadn't heard it articulated that way before, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Psychoanalysis now is, even though it is only a quite a young field, as you said, is facing a lot of resistance or at least being suggested that it needs to be changed and adapted somehow to fit a more more modern context or sort of postmodern context, I guess. Why do you think it does face resistance? What do you think about it makes people feel uneasy or or uncomfortable? I mean, it's interesting. I think there's like a a desire of resistance. I mean, there's a total intrigue with psychoanalysis too. I mean, the, the amount of times that it ends up on television, I always find slightly amusing. Um, and the terms filter in, you know, I mean, all of the terms are, are used, mommy issues, daddy issues, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're, they're floating around at the same time that um, there's so much pushback against Freud per se. You know, I think it's always going to be that way, you know, and, and, and the other thing that I, I hear all the time is, you know, that there's something so self-indulgent. It's so self-indulgent to go like, you know, think that you should talk about yourself four times a week. And it goes against, I think, whatever, neoliberal, I hate that word, but um, neoliberal values, like kind of efficiency, you know, money well spent, you know what you're getting your money for kind of a thing versus this long process in which two people like commit to finding out as much as they can and the effort that that takes. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think it's interesting because as you say there, you know, there are sort of Freudian terms that are so pervasive in culture, yet people are so disconnected with sort of the reality that these are ideas that actually come from Freud, like you say, with with um, mummy issues or daddy issues. So I think sometimes it's even just a, a lack of visibility or knowing where these sort of concepts come from. It's true. I mean, even like to call, we call people anal all the time. I and mean, we wouldn't <laughs> have that without <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Can you explain where in Freud that comes from? Because I think that would be would be interesting for people to know. <laughs> yeah. No, he wrote this amazing book called The Three Essays on the Theory of Sexuality, in which, you know, he starts out with the idea that everyone thinks that you only get sexuality as an adolescent and that the whole point of sexuality is in the interest of reproduction. And that's the purpose of sexuality. And then he's like, what about kissing? What about anal sex? What about our investment in all of these other body parts, whether it's touching or looking or sucking or whatever it is? And then he goes back into childhood and he says, how have we neglected the fact that children are so oral, so anal, (laughs) so masturbatory, and that we redo all of this in our like pre-genital copulation for the purposes of reproduction we do all of these other things and then we pretend that that doesn't exist and that sex is just for reproduction yeah and so that was, i mean that I, that that i think was like a watershed moment 
You know, he also pointed out homosexuality as one of the oldest forms of sexuality <laughs> that we know of, you know, going back to ancient Greece. And he pointed out that what he called the perversions, whether it's things like pedophilia, bestiality, he said the, the highest and lowest are found together, you know, insofar as there's, you know, you're always finding elements of perversion and elements of tenderness. It's not just like bad sexuality, good sexuality. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it is so interesting, especially around sort of how unwilling we often are to recognize the sort of sexuality of children. And as you say, then you have to go through a process of um, trying to rediscover that as you get older, which makes it a lot, a lot more challenging and, and difficult. So it's, it's a very interesting thing. <laughs> He pointed out, which I, was the greatest moment in that text, which was that we had ignored, repressed, refused to acknowledge childhood sexuality, and that we don't remember ourselves as children. There's a repressive moment in which all of this real early intense bodily sexuality of the child is actually repressed in us. So the natural biological repression of this early formation of our sexuality goes hand in hand with a civilizational repression of childhood sexuality. And that's how he kind of like starts that essay. Talking about the subconscious, obviously a lot of what we've just been talking about, people are probably thinking, well, I've never thought about any of these things in my life. They've never even really occurred to me. Mm -hmm. Obviously that's because they are occurring in part of our mind that we can't access. So can you explain what the subconscious is to people and how that impacts how they relate to the world? Mm -hmm. Well, if you think about it, there's consciousness means a kind of attentive focus to certain aspects of life. And we don't really, there's so much that we're experiencing that we don't necessarily attend to. And Freud also just pointed out, like, there's so much going on in your body that you don't attend to. It's only when you get a stomachache that, you know, you suddenly think about your digest dig digestion. Or we also realize how much we don't remember um, at a given point in time. We have to put our memories somewhere. And those memories themselves are like condensed versions of, of a massive amount of experience as a human being. Um, and then I think there's a lot that's unconsciously communicated <laughs> between people, meaning that there's a lot that we pick up on from other people. It's very in vogue right now to talk about how sensitive and empathic people are and how, you know, so much that, you know, we're, we're open in a way to other people's emotions and traumas and triggers and anxieties and so on. Um, but all of this is somewhere and that somewhere Freud called the unconscious. Um, and he felt that it was, it was very rigorously organized you know, that it can't just be like a haphazard place, that it has to have its own organization and logic. Otherwise, we would really be crazy. Um, and that that logic <laughs> reveals itself. I mean, the unconscious reveals itself and its logic reveals itself. And its logic is very different from the logic by which we operate consciously. Mm -hmm. What are the ideas around what forms that logic for a particular individual? I mean, it's interesting because in listening to people speak as freely as possible, he started to see the way that um, ideas are grouped. And fundamentally, I think he says that they're grouped around pleasure and displeasure and around formative, pleasurable and unpleasurable moments. Lots of associations creep up and they keep attracting new associations to them. And that's why the experiences of childhood are so 
powerful in the Freudian, whatever, metapsychology, because they were the earliest, the first, you know, the first carving into the material of the brain, and they can exert an awful, a lot of attraction to them um, in that way. And so associations are built up over time, and these associations are logical, they have to do with having formal qualities of similarity, ideational qualities of similarity, and that they keep pushing, they keep insisting against consciousness and against reality. And certain parts of us don't want to know about them, don't want those wishes to be gratified, you know, whatever it is, feel that what's being thought about is too transgressive. And so then the conscious forces push back. And so it's this idea that the mind in a way is always in a kind of fight. So could you give an example of that to contextualize it for people a little bit? Yeah. Um, I mean, we talked earlier about eating disorders um, and there might be a real intense oral pleasure, you know, that you just, you really like all of the sensations of the mouth and you like oral gratification and that can be in eating, but that could also be in kissing or that can be in sexual play. But something can, there can be traumatic experiences or there could be prohibitions in your family or there could even be prohibitions in society that say, you should not be a kind of person who enjoys those things. And so you end up with a symptom, let's say like bulimia, where you gratify yourself and then you actually make yourself undo the gratification that you had by throwing up. And all of the memories and all of the excitement and all of the wishes around all of these different experiences and maybe the guilt and the, the punishing feelings, all of that is really not at the forefront of a person's mind. No, no. But you can see how it's so relevant to sexuality and what forms and shapes a person's sort of desires, whether they're experienced or not, whether that person actually goes out and kind of attains them or whether it's something they sort of suppress about themselves more so. You can definitely see why all of that would be incredibly relevant or how it would, would shape us. Another example that I think is really salient because there's so much conversation around it these days is what um, women are told that they're allowed and not allowed to do. Because despite feminism and despite the sexual revolution, the mores around sexuality are stringent still. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that is, that's something that comes up a lot on the show in particular, because we do talk to quite a few sort of feminist thinkers, but who are more on the end of trying to think about, well, often sexuality is pretty distinctly at odds with what a lot of feminist thought or theory should tell us we want when it comes to sex. So there's a pretty big discrepancy <laughs> between I those mean, two things sometimes. Women, women just get it from all fronts, right? I mean, you get it from the conservative yeah. end, you get it from the liberal end, you get it from the radical end. I mean, there's just nothing that we can do right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's true. And I think that's that's a pretty good segue to move into talking about gender ideology and how, how this fits within the context of, of psychoanalysis. Obviously, gender ideology probably as a term didn't really exist when Freud was around and, and working. So could you kind of frame what gender ideology is and how this idea came to emerge sort of in the more postmodern context and how that contrasted potentially with the context that Freud was operating in? Yeah, I mean, I think Freud recognized uh, a diversity in sexuality, but gender identity sort of 
it's not that it's not there. I mean, he says that you can have a male who's more feminine identified or a female who's more masculine identified. So in a way, there's a kind of idea of gender and the, the way in which Ford talked about femininity and masculinity, I don't think was as essentialist as people think, as if there is a real thing called a female and a male. He said, in the end, biologically speaking, there is activity and passivity that a body can be an active body and it can be a passive body. And these have gotten distributed into masculine and feminine. That doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. need to be the case. And we see all kinds of variations around this. So for him, there was like a huge panoply panorama of sexualities that, you know, play around with these figures of passive and active and pain and pleasure and looking and being looked at and touching and being touched. And then all of the erogenous zones And that he called sexuality, which also included love and idealization. (laughs) Um, And all of that would be sexuality. And then there would be something, which I guess would be how you identify, I guess, as a male or female. Um, And then there would be your object choice, whether you want a male or a female. And that's sort of what he was maneuvering around. Then he felt like all, like what a person comes to be as a sexual person and as just a subject in the world was a, was all of these complicated layers that were absolutely singular. And that for me was important because it's not like you're queer or you're hetero or you're a female, you know, like you were singular, like your makeup was absolutely singular. I think in the end of the day. And it's interesting because I think a lot of the important gender theorists that I read in the, like that were coming out in the nineties, especially in the U S like, um, Judith Butler, for example, were very, very indebted to psychoanalysis, which not a lot of people completely understand. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was so interesting about her work is that she was saying, um, that all gender is performative because it's, 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 it's made up, it's constructed. And she got this from Freud. There's nothing natural. Freud said there's no natural object for any given human being. I mean, at that point, you know, he didn't know it, but he throws out monogamy. He throws out reproduction for the sexuality for the purposes of reproduction. He throws out heterosexuality. He throws everything out. There's no natural form for sexuality to take, given that human beings are the the way that he was understanding them to be. So she takes that and says gender is constructed. Um, and her work was very important in that respect. And she also went on to say that that if everybody is bisexual, which Freud said, we're all bisexual, we all have elements of all these things, then to take up a position, either heterosexual or homosexual or whatever it would be, means that you're losing half the sky. Though you're losing half of your sky. And therefore, all gender is melancholic because it's a it's a loss that can't be mourned as such because it can never really be recognized. And, and she's 100% working with Freud in this. Mm. Again, it's that's not obviously an association that a lot of people would make or want to make potentially even. How do you reconcile some of that stuff within the context of ideas around fellowcentrism and, and things like that? Because, I mean, I think a lot of the ideas that he proposed around sort of body parts for for lack of a better term whether that's what he meant by it or not it's sort of how it's often interpreted how does that kind of sit within the context of what is essentially quite queer ideas about the constructed nature of gender and things like that as you've just pointed out the question of the phallus is interesting because the phallus is not the penis (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have to remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The phallus is the idea of power, that there's a signifier of power that can be the penis, right? And in patriarchy has been the penis, but nevertheless, the phallus is not the penis. And that's actually the most important thing, because if Freud said that, then he would just be some sort of theory of male dominance, which I don't think he was. I think he was trying to describe how something, how this worked within the psyche. And I think he has a powerful, and many people have been coming back to this now with all of the dictators that are taking over the world, showing that there's something very important to understand how we as humans make this confusion between the phallus and the penis and all of the signifiers around power and masculinity that function so well to dominate and um, create forms of domination to which we submit. And so I always take the line of the, you know, the feminist psychoanalytic theorist, Jacqueline Rose, who said that for her, what was important for her as a feminist was to understand that Freud was descriptive and not prescriptive. He was describing something. I think he was describing something pretty rigorously, you know, not without his faults, but able to see, I think, very clearly in ways that I even think I, you know, we can't today. I mean, I constantly read him and I'm like, oh. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, that's an interesting point around from sort of a woman's perspective, if you think about the castration complex and, you know, a girl coming of an age where she realizes that she doesn't have a phallus and what that results in psychologically, there's a big difference when you're framing that as power versus a penis. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it makes a lot more sense to me that a young girl would A, be recognizing that she didn't have power versus recognizing that she didn't have a penis. Uh-huh. I think there's something important in the idea that we value presence and exteriority and the signs of the outward signs of desire because a penis does get erect and that's very important. There's like a, there's a visible sign where so much of what a woman experiences is internal and can't be seen. And in our society, like in the phallocentrism of it, of it, in the patriarchy of it, it has privileged all of these things that have confused, but also worked with the penis as phallus, right? For our society is playing with that. We value visibility. We value outward displays of whatever power we value like rigid, strong bodies. We value erectness. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously there are some pretty strong proponents of the idea that psychoanalysis is at odds with certain ideas or aspects of gender. Paul Preciado being one such example. Uh So I wanted to speak a little bit about him and and what he said, because I think it's an interesting kind of counterpoint that allows you to dive a bit deeper into some of the dynamics here. So can you sort of tell people about can the monster speak, what happened, but then your sort of interpretation of it? Sure. I mean, important also is the book Testo Junkie, which um, I'll come back to because there's so much work that Preciado is actually doing with psychoanalysis rather than against psychoanalysis. Um, so I would foreground that book before Can the Monster Speak? Because that's the book about his transition. And it's the important book in which he develops his theory of biopolitics and the idea that basically we're not controlled anymore from the inside out, meaning we take in prohibitions and gender norms and kind of ideas of what it means to be a good human being, you know, which is always like basically a white male 
And that controls us from the inside, that now there's a control from the outside. We are more and more externalized as human beings with technology, but also that the governmental control is getting inside of our bodies. It's controlling our pleasure and displeasure in a very, very subtle way. That's not like a verbal commandment, like don't be the kind of person who X. It's playing with our pleasure, you know, insofar as pornography, pills, different ways in which our bodies are forced to work certain many hours and only relax in certain ways, that all of this is a kind of control that's very hard to get out from under. It's not just like undoing a commandment inside one's head. Preciado looked interestingly at hormones and that, you know, some of the first mass produced hormones were obviously birth control. Um, and that this was cementing ideas about gender and a woman's role at the same time that it was completely undoing it. Because if you were a woman anymore who could stop her reproduction or who stopped producing estrogen, then what were you? And so this was also a way Preciado was reading the beginning of like this, this liquefying of gender and the trans revolution. Interestingly, one of the things that I love about the book is that Preciado is taking testosterone throughout the book and um, speaking to it. Freud is, is one of his great models in this. He says Freud tested everything on himself, which is true. Psychoanalysis in the beginning was Freud testing out his own unconscious. It was Freud taking cocaine. It was, I mean, Freud was really open to taking, doing anything that he could to figure out how desire worked in a body. And this is also what Preciado is doing. He's trying to find his desire out from under all of these controls. So I'm fascinated by the fact that Freud is very central. He calls him the cloaca maxima, meaning the orifice that just like sucks it all in, like sucks anything in that it wants to use. Freud did. I mean, he used everything right around him in order to develop his um, whatever practice. So Freud and psychoanalysis are central to Preciado at that moment. Um, but when he writes, can the monster speak, you know, psychoanalysis is sort of thrown out the window. It's important though, the context of can the monster speak, because it was a book, you know, and Preciado lives a lot of the time in Paris. It was a, it was a lecture given to Lacanian psychoanalysts. Lacan was, I think, like kind of a genius provocateur and they became very reactionary. And um, so I understand him delivering that to them because like the idea of the Oedipus complex at a certain moment in Lacan or in Lacanese was this idea that you, the, the Oedipus makes you a good heterosexual, normal person with a law and language. And so, and then everyone else was psychotic or, you know, neurotic and had too many problems. This is not Freud. I mean, everything, if you've listened to this whole interview up until now, it's obviously not Freud. You know, Preciado was, was taking them to task. And on the one hand, I understand that. On the other hand, it frustrates me that, like, you know, even within this conversation, he lumps together psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, pill pushers, you know, mental health people, insane asylums. You know, like, he just, it's all lumped together. Um, and as I've shown you, this is a this is a chaotic field. It's a field not with like some huge arm of power that's dictating gender, you know, out there, but it's a massive, confused, unallied people. And so I think he really wanted an enemy, which was the Lacanians. <laughs> but on a broader scale, this is not panning out. But I, I, I think the provocation is important, and it's important also insofar as issues around transsexuality are freaking everybody out. 
and the mental health has gotten involved in it. I mean, as a good psychoanalyst, you wouldn't get involved in this way where you're trying to legislate. I mean, we don't, I don't want to get involved in the making of laws and telling people what to do with their bodies. I would never in a million years do anything like that. Mm. But, but that's very, that's very much in track with sort of the politicizing of science and medicine and I mean, really everything across all industries that we're kind of seeing in our, our modern context where it's um, fairly tribal, fairly divided and fairly focused on one side winning over the other as opposed to allowing individuals to make choices for themselves. It's super messy. It's super messy. And I, you know, I don't, you know, I don't, as a, as a psychoanalyst, as a therapist, as a psychologist, whatever, as all these, these different things, I don't know at what point I would step in and say, this is what I think people should do. Because I mean, we work with case by case, we work with the singularity of subjects and we work with bringing them to the point where they understand what it is they need to do. So to all of a sudden rush in and try to legislate um, bodies is crazy to me. We're trying to legislate bodies, be <laughs> legislate or something. I can imagine in your field that would be something that you must grapple with all the time, right? To what extent does psychoanalysis sort of medicalize or pathologize in its own way, and how do you balance that with recognizing the individual? I mean, I, you know, I left various institutes at certain points because I would realize that their fidelity was not to just this weird work with the unconscious and dreams and sex and histories of trauma, but that they were like psychiatrists or something that, 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 that came first. And that it, it, like you, you, you ask these medical legal questions before you take a psychoanalytic stance. And for me, they're, they're incompatible. They were a hundred percent incompatible. I might get very interested in someone's medical problems. Um, I might get worried about someone who's suicidal, but I, I won't, I, I won't take that position ever. Yeah. It's, and I think that's important for people to know as well, because I think that's not necessarily always the story that you hear about sort of, um, psycho psychoanalysis or practitioners within that field. But I think one thing that I've, read you talking about before it was a written version of an interview was sort of the idea of living in a sexed body being not necessarily a bad thing or sort of the joy of being in a sexed body which is not sort of always part of the dominant narrative that you hear these days can you explain what you kind of mean by that and talk through the advantages and disadvantages or the positives and negatives of of living in a sexed body I mean, we suffer because of our sexuality. I think that that's a basic psychoanalytic truth. But I do think that the what we call the contingencies of life or the accidents of life are always at a place where they impact us as sexed human beings. And by sexed, I mean someone with sexuality and with sexual organs, which you know you may or may not identify with the sexes. Um, it could just be your genitals, whatever. This is where life hits us. I think the, the most brutally and the most tenderly and the most, uh, erotically and the most surprisingly. And it's, it's wrestling with that combination that we're both, we're both hurt and driven and brought ecstasy in the same place. And that this is, this is, feels nearly impossible sometimes. And also then feels like the stuff of life. 
And I think when you, when you raise a child and <laughs> you cannot, you, you are constantly interacting with your child's sexuality and you're also constantly trying to forget that that's what you're doing. And that's the weird job of parenting. And then you have to watch them live all of that out. And you have to remember your own sexed life as you do it. I mean, I think that that's, you know, not everyone has children or needs to have children, but certainly I think if you decide to have children, that's one of the amazing things about it and the most terrifying. But that's not something that a lot of people would even touch, right? Even when they have children, as we were talking to earlier, the, the recognition that that's actually what you're doing, what is, you're doing. Is, is often not there. And is that just because it's an uncomfortable reality or because it potentially forces you to reflect on your own relationship? Both. When I told you when I was 18 and I went to work in these psychoanalytic institutes, I worked in this therapeutic nursery and um, I started working with this, like, she was so young. She was like maybe nine months old, this baby. And she was like masturbating in her diaper. And I had never, like, I, this never occurred to me that it could happen that young. She was like rocking in her diaper and like masturbating. And I was so uncomfortable. What was I supposed to do while I was sitting there with this baby masturbating? So I said to the psychoanalyst who was running the thing, like, I, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't, like, what do I do? I just, do I look the other way? Do I like talk to her? Like, that's weird. And she goes, she was Viennese. She goes, you see, we still cannot deal with childhood sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> That's just so funny. <laughs> it's very interesting. And so I think one of the questions that I sent to you, which I would now rephrase if I was sending them to you again, was around the idea of whether we can transcend fellowcentrism. Mm -hmm. And obviously when I wrote that, it was more rooted in this idea of fellowcentrism being this kind of patriarchy thing that's either associated with penises or directly related to penises. I would probably rephrase it now as in what ways do we need to reimagine or change our relationship to fellow centrism as opposed mm -hmm. to can we transcend it? Mm -hmm. But what would your kind of response to that be? The concretization and concentration of power in certain arenas, which obviously happens on a global scale, you know, it happens within civilization, but then happens for a given person in certain ways. We watch the work of analysis, um, disperse that knot. It's as if all of that power that was bound up in a symbol that, 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 that had too much weight, it gets blown into pieces and then it becomes part of networks. Um, and the person lives more freely and more easily and with less masochism, I think actually that's more possible. And I think all of the kinds of things that we're thinking about today with different forms of society that aren't this like brutal top down, which is reasserting its head at this moment that I think we're actually learning about the kind of networks that we need to form that don't centralize power in these ways. That's my, that's my, my post phallus world that I'm hoping <laughs> <for>. <laughs> I, I like the sound of it. And I mean, I think the, the reason that I find that stuff so interesting to think about, particularly for sort of listeners of the show, is that that's directly related to how they relate to their own sexuality, right? Like that stuff is something that sort of begins with you and then there's a ripple effect that happens, I think, when lots of people choose to embrace their own sexuality and lives in that way. So I think I see it being sort of the what you can do part of the equation without feeling completely powerless. 
Absolutely. I mean, there's so many painful enactments that we have to go through in our sexual lives, but then you start to make more and more room for things that are surprising and um, different forms of tenderness and just different forms of excitation that do wonders for people. And, you know, you, you see someone in analysis get to that place and they know and you know that they never would have gotten there without the real intense work and willingness to experiment with their lives. Yeah. There was one final question that I wanted to ask you, and that was around sort of the the idea of repression and it being certain forms of repression not being a bad thing. I think we often fall into this um, myth of thinking all forms of repression are bad and something that we should aim to rid ourselves of. I think you've said something to you to the effect of without it, we'd all be a bit crazy <laughs> and a bit delirious. <laughs> And I, I definitely agree with that. So I'd love for you to sort of unpack right. what you mean by that, but also how sort of normative ideas around sexual liberation yeah. can actually reinforce stereotypes and, and things like that. I mean, I think there's a difference between oppression and repression. Um, you know, oppression, someone exerting <laughs> force against you and repression being a way in which the mind um, puts certain things down um so that you can rest i think we are in a restless restless society not just that we're like you know like jittery which we are but also that we don't know we don't know how to rest anymore and you know you, you the most traumatized people i think i was one of them i maybe i'm still but um you're, you're hyper vigilant you, you can't stop paying attention to everything. You can't stop hearing the aggression in every up single person statement. You can't stop worrying. You can't stop getting triggered. And you don't have repression because you were too blown open. Repression, you know, is a saving grace in a way. It allows you to, to sleep and to dream and to wait and to understand how complicated human beings are. So every sign of aggression isn't an attack. Um, it allows you to to just, you know, hold off a bit and to screen things out and let your mind work, actually, because your mind works best not consciously paying attention to everything. You know, I mean, you listen to anyone who's an artist, the work that they do is is in the background, right? I mean, they, they start like, you know, sending little things in to the, to the box and then they wait for the box to put it all back out. And, and that's, that's what repression does. It's in the service of creativity, not in oppression of it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. Something else that I read that you'd said was around reading literature being almost more useful than studying neuroscience in some <laughs> cases and sort of un understanding how people think about things. And, and to me, that makes a lot of sense, as you say, with artists where it's all kind of happening in, in the background. And you can see how that's particularly relevant to, to sex as well, where we know when your mind is overactive and you're kind of trying to be extremely conscious about everything, you're probably not going to have uh, great sexual experiences. No. <laughs> no. It's also like, it's, it's this idea that like you, you also don't remember all, like if you remembered every little thing that happens in those crazy sexual interactions, I mean, it would be a weird experience. Whereas you have a kind of memory, right. Which is half repression, half, memory you know as a, as a 
you, you feel the combination of those two and the force that's exerted on such an intense bodily experience. And that's actually what's beautiful is the scrap of memory. That's half repression that comes from your sexual encounters. Thanks for listening to The Philosophy of Sex. And a big thank you to my guest, Jameson. For more information about Jameson's work, as well as recommended reading, head to the show notes. If you haven't already, I highly recommend diving into Freud. Thanks to our editor and composer, Zoltan Fecho. And don't forget to leave a review or subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.